invite you to rise for the gospel reading. Today is the second Sunday after the Epiphany, and the gospel reading comes to us from John. In this season of Epiphany, we look at the acts of Jesus. It's, it's a little different from the season of Pentecost, although we do have the green color, which we use for ordinary time, which talks about the deeds of life in the Spirit. But Epiphany is sort of like a little mini ordinary time where we look at specific things in Jesus's life that sort of directs us to our attention of the, the, re, the way that which he revealed God to us. So today's passage comes to us from the first chapter of John's gospel, verses 29 through 42. And what we have here is a very different reading on John the Baptist. In this one, John the Baptist is truly a mystical figure. Uh, he's not somebody who is in the know. He is somebody who is, who is operating underneath the signs of God, looking for the signs of God, not going by past experience or some sort of a human wisdom. So uh, listen up, and then, uh, and then I can try to explain a little bit later on. A reading from the Gospel of John. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. But when Jesus turned and saw them following him, he said to them, what are you looking for? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and they saw he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One who heard him speak was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found his brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah which translated means anointed. And he brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You were Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. So Mary, if I, if I wanted to leave the, the confines of the pulpit, which, which camera angle would, would we want to go with? And which, what's safe? Because <laughs> I don't want to walk out of the frame and they go, disembodied voice. So is this, is, is this good? Not that a dis, you know, disembodied voice never, never bothered you. Years ago, I know I haven't started the sermon yet, but years ago I like to tell stories. I was, I was feeling very ill when I was, this was years ago, because oftentimes you guys are like, hmm, we don't really see you ill enough. But I was feeling ill, and I was, I was in church, and I was like, I was standing there, and I was looking at the congregation, and I was like, I, I can't look at these people. I said, I feel like I'm going to get sick, not because of the congregation, right, but because of the way I was feeling. So I grabbed, uh, I grabbed the microphone, and I went into the office, and I preached to the microphone. I felt like, you know, early podcasting. 
So I was sitting in there and I was preaching. I was like, can everyone hear me? They go, yeah, we can hear you. So actually, there was a time when I preached a disembodied voice sermon right here at First Congregational back in the day. See, I'm a forerunner. Do crazy things. All right, now, let us pray. Loving and most merciful God, we thank you once again for this day that you have given us. And we thank you for the spirit that falls, refresh, and renews us in so many ways. We ask today that as you continue to lay your blessing upon us, it won't just stop there. It'll move through us. It'll animate our way of doing things, and it will inform what we do and how we do it. And may we never bar the spirit. May it pass through us and on to those that we are privileged to serve. And in all things, keep your eye upon us that we too might continue to bear your light in season at all times through the glorious blessings and affirmations of your Holy Spirit. Guide us now and always. In your name we pray. So like I said, in, in my initial reading, this, this John, this John the Baptist is very different from the one that we find in the synoptics. Now in the synoptics, uh, John is, he's a homie, right? He knows Jesus. He's related to Jesus. He doesn't disavow the fact that he knows Jesus. And just last week when we had the baptism of, of Jesus, that text that came up in Matthew, we see that there was an exchange between Jesus and John, and Jesus presented himself to John for baptism, not for the same reasons that everyone else was. He didn't need a baptism for the repentance of sins, but in order that righteousness might be observed in the prophecy. So when he presents himself before John and Matthew, John's like, if you are who you say you are, you, you should be baptizing me. It's not the other way around. And Jesus is like, calm down, son. Let this be done because this is about righteousness. It's, it's not about you. It's not really even about me. But it's about to fulfill the righteousness so we can get things done in the right order of things. But now we have the signs gospel, right? The gospel of John, which some scholars have said was written like a parable in and of itself. And in this signs gospel, we have the, the sort of namesake, which is debatable as to who John was. But we have John the Baptist in this text who is clearly a much more mystical, prophetical figure. He was appointed by God to proclaim the way of the Messiah, to clear the sort of, to clear the way and to open people's hearts and minds that the Messiah would be coming. And when the Messiah arrives, when that Messiah gets there, he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what that meant. But they knew that, that if it was going to be the Lord's anointed, it was going to lead them into a completely new understanding of who they were and, and what they were called to do. So this John the Baptist is preaching from a much more prophetical place because he has no inclination. Everyone who comes to him could be the anointed because he was given the express commandment that on the one whom you see the dove descend and remain will be the one who is the anointed and will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. So you can imagine how John would carry out his ministry with that in mind. If he's constantly looking for the one whom the Spirit is going to descend upon, everyone's suspect. Everyone could possibly be that individual. It's not like he's just waiting around and saying, yeah, I know who you are. I know your parents. I know where you came from. I know your backstory. Get on, get on in here and splash in no more, right? So there's that sense in which there's baptizing because of a human wisdom, and then there's the being caught up in the mystery, not quite knowing where or when or who's going to be presented to you, and baptizing with that sense of same eagerness of expectation of revelation that everyone else would be having. So this John 
is at a, a greater disadvantage because he doesn't have any foreknowledge. He has a prophecy, and he continues to remain in the understanding of that prophecy that at any moment, the Messiah, the anointed, will come for him, but he just has to see the sign. So when Jesus presents himself for baptism, and the dove does come and descend upon him and remains there, then, then John realizes, my ministry has come to a close. My, my time is up, right? He ranks, Jesus ranks ahead of John because he was before John, because he was, he was uh, you know, part of this sort of greater inception of the, of the divine cosmos before John was. So John now is able to, with Jesus' arrival, John's able to sort of ease into the background. He now has the individual that he can point to and say, here is, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the one who is going to help you complete your spiritual journey. You don't need me anymore. You can attach yourself now to his personage, his teaching, his instruction, and he will take you, you know, sort of the rest of the way. Now, John had disciples. Um, we know this from other Gospels as well. And maybe because people were attaching themselves to John the Baptist, thinking that perhaps maybe he might be the anointed, he might be the Messiah. But what's interesting about this passage in, in John's Gospel today is that one of John the Baptist's disciples was Andrew. Andrew, who later went on to become one of Jesus' disciples. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. So he is standing there and he is hearing John point to Jesus and say, there goes the Lamb of God. You're like, stop following me. You start following him. Now, this is a really interesting thing because they, I don't know exactly what transpired in that moment. And John doesn't tell us that. And John's a mystical gospel, so there's many details that are probably missing and not access to us. And it could be some literary license as well. But you have the situation where all of a sudden these two disciples who had been so devoted and so loyal to John the Baptist, at his urging and at his request, they leave John the Baptist and they start tailing Jesus. Now, you would think that this would create some bit of paranoia on Jesus' behalf because he's walking and there's these two guys who are trailing him, you know, kind of like, like government stooges. And he stops and he turns to them. And this is a very important question. When he stops and he turns to address these disciples, he's like, what are you looking for? Now, that's a powerful question. It almost seems like a throwaway line. So much of what we read about in the gospel seems like throwaway lines. But when he turns to these two unsuspecting disciples who don't even quite know why they're following him with the exception of the fact that John the Baptist says, don't be hanging out with me in the water. You need to get on, move on. Go and follow that guy. Quick, catch him before he turns the corner and he's gone. So Jesus turns to them and he says, what are you looking for? Now this is not, this is, this is a mystical question, right? It's a mystical question. They answer it with a very matter-of-fact answer. They go, well, you know, Rabbi, where, where are you staying? But they don't know what they're looking for. They don't even really know why they're following Jesus. But John just said, you can't hang out with me anymore. So they're following Jesus. They don't quite know what they're looking for. They don't know what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. But they want to see where this guy is staying, so they might just be in his company. Now, let's talk, about, let's talk about walking paths, right? I mean, as the weather is eventually going to warm up, I know we're in January, but the weather will warm up, you'll be back hitting your favorite trails. But don't you every once and again, when you go out, whether you're hiking, whether you're cycling, or even whether you're going out for a drive, do you ever want to take the road, you know, turn off the GPS, 
and take a road you've never gone before, not because you know where it's going to end, not because you know the end result, but because you just want to be a part of the journey. You want to see what's going to be revealed to you. That's where these two disciples are. That's where Andrew and the other unnamed disciple are right now when they're following Jesus. They're not following Jesus because they know who he is and they know exactly what he's going to do for them, but they want to see perhaps that maybe Jesus knows something about themselves that if they keep his company... They will come to discover a depth of self that they would not have otherwise realized without his assistance, without his input, without his participation. So when they go, Master, where are you staying? Jesus doesn't say, I'm not going to give you that information. That's privileged information. John's been flapping his mouth about me. No, he says, come and see. Now, come and see is one of the most powerful invitations that we can ever extend to anyone to participate in the spiritual life. Right? And beware of the church who wants to keep their secrets secret. Who don't invite you to worship. Because they don't want you to know what goes on in their secret fellowship. And you don't know about their meetings. Or you have to pass some sort of like weird pedigree test and blood test in order to be able to, to, to enter in and, and, and involve yourself in what's going on. Be encouraged and do not be offended when somebody wants you to share in the spiritual life. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you're going to walk away from First Congregational because you've got loyalty here. Otherwise, my little smile's going to go down. See, they left me. They left me because somebody gave them a better invitation. Trust me, we ministers are paranoid. We're very paranoid. We're like, why are they gone? Where are they leaving? Why are they going? Are they, I hope they're watching online. I hope they're watching online because if they're watching somebody else, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I'm groans up. I can handle it. Because they're already touching the channel right now. They, they've gone away. <laughs> but this come and see invitation, this has been the foundational principle of any, you know, bring a friend Sunday, right? Bring a friend Sunday grows out of the come and see. Come to my Bible study. Come to our church meal. That's how you get them. Lead them by their gut, right? It's like, we're, that's why I invited you to the annual meeting with food. I say, we've got treats. We have treats and we have coffee and you can hang out with us. And we've got heat, right? We've got heat. We've got, we got free Wi-Fi. I mean, hey, we'll, we'll butter the bread however you need it to keep you here. But come and see is a very powerful spiritual tool that we have. Invite people who are wondering, what is it that gives you your sheen? What is it that drives you? What is it that motivates you? Why is it that you continue on with this spiritual path? Why do you continue to read the Bible? Why do you continue to study that? Why do you continue to have these conversations? Why do you continue to sing them sorry old hymns, right? When people ask you that and you say, come and see. Come and see. Because there is uplift for the soul, but sometimes you have to experience these things. So what happened to these men at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which sounds like it's a line that came out of Monty Python? But it came out of John's gospel. About 4 o'clock in the afternoon, these two disciples sit down and they spend a the day with Jesus. And we don't know what transpired in there, but we do know the end result is that Andrew, after having that initial audience with Jesus, he goes to his brother and he's like, dude, you got to come check this guy out. That we were hanging out with John. You can almost tell him. I'm going to try to tell the story the best way that Andrew did. We were hanging out with John like you know, we always do, shirk, shirking our duties from, from, from dad. And we were hanging out with John, and this dude walks by. Never seen him before in my life. Anyway, John's like, that's him. That's the guy. That's the one you need to follow. So we started following him, right? You know, kind of trying to keep a respectful distance, but he was on to us. And he turned around, and he's like, hey, what are you looking for? And they're like, you know, we were kind of like feeling stupid because we were busted. And we were like, uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he's like, come and see. He was totally welcoming. So we went. We hung out with him. And we just listened to him. 
And he said things that I've never heard said before in the way that he said it. And he was, he was really patient with our foolish questions. You got to meet him. You got to meet him. So he goes and he brings his brother back, right? What does Andrew do? Andrew does a come and see. Jesus does a come and see on Andrew. Andrew goes to Peter. He does a come and see. And apparently he was compelling enough and had a good enough relationship with his brother that Simon Peter said, yeah, I'll go check this guy out. On your word, on your testimony, I will go and meet this guy. And when he comes, Jesus like totally reveals, you were Simon, son of John. From now on, you will be called Cephas, which means Peter, because we came to know him as Peter. Now imagine that introduction, right? Now, was, did, did Andrew say, I'm going to get my brother, and his name is Simon Peter, and our dad's name is John. I, I'm, I'm going to get him. I'm bringing him back. Or did Jesus know this from like the cosmic waves, like I know who you are? Doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is that Jesus has a welcoming spirit and he invites these strangers in and he completely transforms their life. What's this mean for us? We who try to do worship in accordance with the, the revelation that, that Jesus has given us, right? That Jesus has sort of opened the access to God and he has set a certain type of tone of behavior and conduct. So come and see ministry, come and see discipleship. That, that's our hope and stay. That is. We cannot, this, this word is too powerful, too significant. And, we, and those of us who have had our lives transformed by it, right, in various ways. Good moments, not so good moments. But at times in which we have most felt held by God and God was real for us. And maybe God is probably more real for us out there in the world where things really happen than so much in the, in the sacred spaces and the appointed times that we have. Like when we're in worship, maybe God's not so real in worship. And maybe, you know, because if God were more real in worship, ministers wouldn't go as long as they do because God would be like, the people are, you're losing the people, shut up. But I haven't gotten that message right now. So, you know, God's, if God's speaking to you, that's, you know, he hasn't texted me yet. But check this out. So maybe the reality of, of our God moments do happen out there in the, in the unawares, in moments where we least expect it, in encounters that we didn't anticipate. And all of a sudden, there's this revelation that unpacks in us, and we, we go, ah, yes, yes, that's what this is about. And when you have those moments, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to Emily Dickinson them, put them in some, some box and slide them away, right? To be found after your demise? Or are you going to go and do an Andrew and go and tell someone who is important and significant to you to come and see? Because what we need to do is we need to raise up a new understanding of what it means to, be, to belong to a community of faith. Uh, so often communities of faith are, are, are dubbed as the last place you want to go. Right? Dreary, dodgy, judgmental, elderly people, not, not your scene, you know? Even if you are elderly, I don't know what that means, because you're getting some funny looks. But right, if you, because sometimes you can be young, right? You can be chronologically young, but yet kind of carry yourself like elderly. You know what? I'm getting myself in trouble. Okay, anyway, here's the thing the come and see spirit, that desire to want to share. A divine moment, a sacred moment, a transformational moment is the stuff that revitalizes and renews communities of faith. We have to be able to have a contrary definition of what it means to belong to a community of faith than the one that so often rules the day. 
And so often I think churches are maligned and, and houses of worship are maligned because we, it's got that Philip Gully working on me, is because so often we're, we're mired in tradition. And sometimes tradition is abrasive. And tradition is heavy-handed. And tradition bars the door. And tradition bars the spirit. And when we get so mired down in these things, we don't want others to come and see. We want them to go away. Go away because we got something going on here. And the moment that we hear your voice, it's going to change the entire landscape. And we can't have that. We can't have that. So thank you, no. But you can leave your checkbook at the door. <laughs> right? But don't come in here with your new ideas. Don't come in here with your craziness and your wildness. Don't come in here flinging wide the doors and saying, hey, let's welcome this person. and let's welcome." Mm -mm, no, we don't do that here. That come and see ministry died when the man went to the cross, okay? Right? There, there are communities of faith that operate like that, and they can be very successful in their sort of very narrow parameters. I don't want us to be one of them. Okay? And I'm not going to apologize about that. I think there's a come and see spirit that is alive and well in our hearts, and I think we need to be encouraged to fan that flame because, to me, what, what Jesus is saying in this encounter is that I have something that, that needs to come forth, that needs to be unburdened. I, I, have a, I have an urgency to want to connect people with God at the most deepest intimate levels, and I'm not going to take no for an answer. And so we who continue to do ministry in the man's likeness, I think it should be no different for us. I think we too should be on fire to, to invite others, you know, to, to draw from this wellspring that has informed and directed our lives beyond measure. Amen. Kind of feels good to be out of the pulpit. I haven't lost it.